FEMA alerts and the tinfoil hysteria that came with them, a Kansas EV plant powered by coal, and L.A. County has decided to go full purge with cashless bail and a lawless policy. It's time to crown my losers of the week. Let's get started. Yesterday at around 2.20 p.m. Eastern-ish, the federal government tested the emergency alert system with a super annoying screeching signal sent out to all consumer cell phones. Now, the test was conducted by FEMA in tandem with the FCC, and it was just a drill, albeit an annoying drill. But perhaps even more annoying than the alert itself was the mass tinfoil hat hysteria that surrounded the alert. The testing is going to go on way longer than the minute. I know that they've said it should go on for 30 minutes. I heard that it's going to go on actually for a couple of hours and that the only sound we'll hear is that first initial minute in three bursts and blasts, but there will be tones, vibrations, and frequencies going on for hours. I am shutting everything down, unplugging everything from the sources, putting my devices inside my microwave unplugged, and if you don't have a microwave, I would wrap them in foil because apparently the signals can get past Faraday cages. Okay, folks, a lot of conspiracy theories, especially over the last five years, have turned out to be incredibly accurate. And I'm all for questioning the potentially sinister and surely tyrannical methods of the federal government. But come on now. It's time to loosen the tinfoil hats up just a little bit to let your brains get some air. These tests are not new. Our phones do the same thing when there's an amber alert or a flood watch. I don't trust the government either, but it's a little much to assume this alert system test was some kind of a nefarious deep state tool in the Chamber of Secrets. Important to note, however, that it did come two minutes early, which further proves the federal government literally sucks at and ruins everything. But speaking of ineffective and sucking, my next loser this week is green energy, which also generally fails when used or needed the most. Here is just another example. Let's take it to the heartland of DeSoto, Kansas, where Panasonic is building a giant 4 million square foot electric vehicle battery manufacturing factory. But here is the best part and the most predictable. Are you ready? In order to meet the energy demands of this giant EV factory, this plant has to rely on coal power. Yes, dirty coal power. After flack from environmental groups like the Sierra Club about coal being racist against black and Latinx communities, Evergy, the utility company that powers the EV battery plant, vowed to transition to natural gas by the end of the year, but that isn't going to happen, and coal power will be utilized until at least 2028. But it gets even better. Part of Evergy's plan to pay for all of this, this giant energy-sucking EV plant, is to raise rates for its residential customers. That's the big green agenda in a nutshell, folks. Green energy takes dirty energy to power the green energy because green energy is unreliable and ineffective, and then the little people subsidize it and then also take rate increases to pay for it. That's quite the green new deal. But my last loser of the week is also a great deal. Well, if you're a thug or a felon or a thug or felon apologist, LA County has decided to give cashless bail a go. 
America is lawless and LA is the epicenter, the shining example of idiotic policies in the home, the poster child, the gold standard for felon coddling lawlessness. But the Democrats, they look at all that and they say, cashless bail, now that's the solution. Democrat leaders literally look around at all that carnage and thuggery and filth and say, yeah, what we really need here is the mass release of perpetrators, assailants, predators, and degenerates. I wonder what could possibly go wrong besides everything. In LA, they decided to just pretty much pull the lever and go full purge mode on their cities and their streets. So starting this week, all nonviolent offenders will be released back on the streets instead of being held in jail. Now, advocates say this is more equitable because cash bail is racist and puts poor criminals at a disadvantage. Excuse me while I shed a tear for the poor criminals stealing Gucci belts and iPhones. Let's also keep in mind LA's very loose definition of nonviolent. In LA, this is just another day out at the mall. And if you can't afford Christmas this year, may I suggest a plane ticket to LA County where the five finger discount makes every day, not just Black Friday, but Christmas morning. At this rate, expect to be more severely punished for misgendering than stealing, smashing, vandalizing, or destroying. These Democrats cannot give one solid justification for this, not one, and sadly, they really haven't been made to. It's Lord of the Flies and they're fine with it. But hey, at least California's newly appointed senator from Maryland is black and gay. Gotta love it. Those are my losers of the week. Be sure to come back next week right here at the same time, same place. I promise there's so much more where that came from. Moving on now to more things that suck. Mortgage rates are nearly are nearing 8% after hitting a high not seen since the year 2000. The housing market is bad for buyers, for sellers, and even for renters. For a borrower purchasing a $400,000 home with a 20% down payment on a 30-year fixed loan, the monthly payment today is about $930 more than it was when rates were at 3% during the height of the COVID pandemic. Who the actual hell can afford that? You know, a big part of the American dream is buying a home, but it's so unaffordable to even exist right now. Many Americans feel they might be worth more dead than alive. That is, unless you're an illegal immigrant, then housing while it's provided. But is there a light at the end of this tunnel of doom? Here to give us the good, the bad, and the Brandon is the owner of Budget Dog, Brennan Schlagbaum. So, Brennan, as I just explained to the American people that I feel are probably pretty well aware of this, Mortgage rates right now, people that are wanting to buy a home, heck, people that are wanting to sell a home, rent a home, pretty much people that don't want to be homeless are in a real tight spot right now. And I got to be honest with you, Brandon, like a dumbass, I am in the process of purchasing a home at the worst time ever. But please give me maybe a glimmer of optimism or if there's none to be had, just give me the cold, hard truth. What are we looking at with the next six months to a year? So I think we need to look historically speaking first to understand where we're at in current day. So let's go back to 1981, where the median home price was about 66000 and the median income was about 23000 So that's basically, roughly speaking, 3x of median home price uh, to median income. Now, in 2023, things look a lot different. The median home price is about 416000 That's 6.2 times more than it was in 1981. That's not what gives me pause. What gives me pause is the median income has not increased at that same rate. Today, it's 75,000. That's only 3.3x of where it was. So meaning median home price today was five and a half percent or five and a half times a median income. So 2.9 to 5.5, we nearly have doubled over the last 40 or so years and things don't look great. 
And I think there's a lot of things to kind of take into consideration here, but there was a 26% increase from 2020 alone. And that's something that we all need to be aware of with home prices, because I don't see home prices coming back. Now, the big question is the rates. The rates are what are up in the air and the rates are driving a lot of the actual pricing or the actually the mortgage payment that somebody pays on one of these homes, because we could drastically change uh, the, the price of a mortgage simply by the rate. So looking backwards again, in you know, an $82,000 home in 1981 at 18% rates, because remember, historically speaking, we were up there 18%. We've come down quite a bit. 20% down would cost around $1,100 a month. So that house is, is not really doable for the average American. And if we applied those today to a $322,000 home, 20% down, that's a $4,000 monthly mortgage payment, but the total payment would be about $1.1 million over 30 years. That's alarming. Now, if we reduce that, let's call it to 4%, that looks a lot different. And this is the glimmer of hope you were asking for. So 4%, that $322,000 home costs about $1,232 a month with a total cost of only $444,000. That looks a lot better than the $1.18 million. And so as long as we have historical context, we understand where we sit in the market, I think overall, we're going to be fine, but some things are going to have to change. Yeah, a lot of things are going to have to change. I'm wondering, were we ever going to get back to 4%? Does the economy just have to completely bottom out and things have to get really bad? We have to go into like a severe recession to get these rates down because they just keep going up and up. I mean, the highest since 2000, it's not looking good for people that want to sell their homes, for people that want to get into a new home. And then renters are having a similar problem. You know, I work with a lot of millennials and Gen Zers who are wanting to buy their home because they don't want to rent anymore and pay someone else's mortgage, but they can't save enough money to make a down payment because they can't afford anything. So everybody's in a real bind right now. And is this whole housing market just going to go stagnant for the next year? Or do you see the possibility of something changing in the near future? Yeah, it, it should be interesting. So uh, the Fed said in September in their meeting, they said that they're not doing anything with rates. They're keeping them right where they are. But they did imply that by the end of the year, they're going to have one more rate hike increase. So we'll see what that actually turns out to be. They're, they're pretty good at telling us what's going to come. And a lot of people expect it to be around 5.6% at that point in time. So there is no telling. I, I don't know the future. Not, nobody really knows the future at the end of the day, but that's what's implied. And so my guess and my, my prediction over the next, at least to the end of the year in early 2024, is we're going to hover around 6 to 8% rates, mortgage rates that is. And I don't really see much change from that perspective. Now, at the same time, I think adjustments could be made. So there are a lot of deals that are on the market still today. And I don't want everybody to think that there's no hope out there because I just personally bought a home in October of 2022. When the median sales price for new homes were about 500,000 roughly, the median existing home sales price at the time was about 378,000. There was a gap of about $118,000, which is substantial, right? That gap has now shrunk to 30,000. So the market is shifting and the market is changing, similar to the car market. For anybody out there in a car market is, you know, we just also bought a new car. But because the used car was $5,000 cheaper, it was 35,000 or 40,000, a used versus a new. Well, I'm going to upgrade to the new because it's only $5,000 more. And I see this with the housing market too. It's like these gaps are shrinking and it's going to be really interesting how we navigate and how the American people navigate this over the coming months and the coming years. Typical starter homes out there are still on the market. 
there's about 23% of the uh, the inventory is, is a starter home. Let's call it 243,000. Well, an average income earner in America, 75,000 can afford that very easily. However, not everybody wants to jump down to a starter home. And I understand that, but there has to be an expectation realignment with the American people is if you don't make enough, you need to adjust your lifestyle or you're going to continue to work backwards. Yeah. Well, that's the hard part. Would you say just right now as it stands, who has the upper hand, buyers or sellers? You know, I, I would say across the board, uh, the sellers have the upper hand because a lot of these sellers are sitting in a house that might be a two, three percent market. They can control the price because they know the demand is there. And as people come into the market, for example, if, if rates dropped really aggressively, really quickly, which probably isn't the best idea, there's going to be a huge flux of people trying to get houses. But the bidding is going to go up as a, it's going to be a bidding war. And we don't want to see that. So I would say right now at this point in time, the buyers have the upper hand, but we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, the future is going to tell us the truth. Yeah, uh, here in Nashville, you know, during 2020, 2021, a lot of Californians just flooded into Nashville and they bought up all the homes, sight unseen, offering way over ask to get them. I mean, it really was a feeding frenzy. And now I think you're starting to see our market settle where that California money is already here. It's not there for the taking anymore. And people are not getting these huge inflated prices like they were used to a couple of years ago. So, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a weird time to be a buyer, a seller, a renter. I don't know what to do next, but I just bought a house. So I guess I'm not, I'm not super there, there intelligent, we go. but, um, it, you know. It, it, I think there's a lot to this conversation, obviously. It, it depends which market you're in because, you know, I'm in the DFW market. I came from Cincinnati, Ohio. This year we moved to uh, DFW area. You know, my brother actually just got married in Nashville and we, he loves it there. He's in Miami right now. He was in D.C., uh, you know, he's thinking about moving to Nashville, actually. So I think where you move the market, when we say market, I think it depends where we're actually talking about, because the United States market as a whole, we understand that. But what's really important is which part of that market do you move in? And there's a lot of affordability, you know, across the United States, but they might not be the most luxurious places or places people want to live in. But I can speak from experience at in Cincinnati, Ohio. I wouldn't say that's a real sought upon destination, but a lot of people really, really like it. I loved it growing up there. There's everything that you could think of there. It's not the New York City. It's not LA. It's not DFW, but Cincinnati is a great place to raise a family for young professionals. And I think it's a fantastic place to look at Indianapolis out there, uh, Cleveland. There's a lot of good cities out there that don't have a good reputation overall that are really disrespected, but I lived in one of those and it worked perfectly. And then you left and went to Dallas. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, there there are. It is, if you're willing to downgrade, there is possibility. It's just a lot of people obviously don't want to do that. And they feel like their dollar is not going as far. And that brings us just to the overall economy with inflation. You know, the White House is touting, you know, these modest improvements, but the American people aren't feeling it. They look at their grocery bill. It's astronomical. They look at the cost of everything. Astronomical. Plane tickets, astronomical. Gas prices, astronomical. I know we're going to be heading into an election year, so I would assume some things will change just for the benefit of the people running. But I'm wondering in the next, again, the same thing in the next year, year and a half, as you look at the market, as you look at inflation, at the economic outlook, should we be preparing for doomsday or is it going to get a little better? 
You know, I'm not I'm not a doomsday type of person. Uh, what I will say is that have you been to a grocery store or a gas station? You know, prices aren't where they're saying they're at. And we have all felt that as the American people. And that's why we don't have the trust anymore, because the CPI data is saying one thing, but our pockets are saying another. And so what, whether the, the data is manipulated, whatever the case may be, we need to take very close eye to that and, and prepare financially for those moments, because I don't see it getting much better over the next year. I really think it's going to be a very rocky market. I think there's going to be ups and downs. And I think everybody you know, here in America needs to take note of this very seriously because we could be losing. There could be job loss in the future. There's a lot of things that could potentially happen. And I don't want to see a total wreckage of, you know, the American people out here because, you know, good, hardworking people trying to provide for their families. And there's things outside of their control that are that are just dominating their results. And we need to take control back internally and say, what can we control? Not what the external, you know, government and the United States, uh, you know, tax code is going to dictate, if that makes sense. I wonder, too, when we're talking about the price of things, it might seem like a small thing, but it's really not. The, the shoplifting and the theft that these retailers are sustaining, I mean, that gets passed off onto the, the actual customer who wants to buy and not steal. So that's going to be a big part of this. Then you mentioned the jobs. We've got millions of illegal immigrants that now want to work and in many cases are being allowed to work, 500,000 Venezuelans. So you're going to have Americans that maybe were really happy to do nothing during COVID and get their mailbox checked, but then are going to need to work. And then all of a sudden those jobs aren't going to be there. Uh, these cities are also sustaining you know, huge issues with the migrant crisis and not being able to afford that. There are already so many homeless people, so it feels really bad, and it feels like things are not going to get better, and we, we hope that they do, but it just it, it doesn't feel like it if you're an American. There's not a lot of optimism out there. For, in order and, for it to get better, what, in your mind, would need to happen? Sure. And, and I think this is the other thing is I'm a pretty optimistic guy. So in general, I think there's going to be ebbs and flows in the market. That's a natural course of of, a, of the stock market and how we kind of generate. Right. So the market's going to go up and down. And that's part of the game. And those that hold and buy and hold, you know, the low cost index funds, ETFs, investments that I talk about, you're going to end up in a good position. And if you don't, that just means that the entire American economy has crashed in a massive way. And we have a whole different conversation at that point. So there are times where the sentiment is real low. And I think I'm feeling that right now because as I'm talking to my clients and students, working with people in my academy, and also just out there in the general public, you know, you go to the gym, you go to the grocery store, people are asking you those questions, family members, and it just doesn't feel like people are real confident. And But what I will say is there are facts that we don't know that will come about and all of a sudden sentiment will shift and the economy will go in the opposite direction. And that's all, that's a tell oldest time. And that's going to continue to happen year and year and year after uh, going forward. Now, the thing is, the news is going to want you to see the fear, the doom and the gloom a lot. And I think that plays into the American people's mind a little too much. And I think if we take a step back and realize what is factual, what is, you know, let's look at the facts, let's look at the data historically. I'm not too concerned about the next decade. I know a lot of people are, but I think that's very normal. And if you look at any bit of human history, as this is we're in that period where people are fearful, but usually on the other side is a glimmer of hope. Yeah, uh, an election is that glimmer of hope. But I got to be honest with you, I'm not as optimistic as you are. If we and I say we if Republicans lose in 2024, I mean, I don't know how bad things are going to get. I fear 
for the worst and I plan for the worst. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about is something that I know nothing about and I've had it explained to me so many times, but I don't understand crypto. I don't understand why anybody would buy Bitcoin. I feel like it's all just a house of cards to me, but there's been a lot of back and forth on crypto. It was hot and then it wasn't and now I don't know if it's hot again. Tell me what you're seeing with crypto and is it worth it? Is it even a real thing? Because I'm not convinced it's even a real thing to be honest with you, Brennan. <laughs> Yeah, so let, let's put this in perspective as well. This reminds me of the dot-com era, and I really see a lot of parallels to that. So I do see most of these projects out there, you know, the NFT rug pools and the, the little crap coins that pop up. I guarantee those things are wiped out without question. Now, the Bitcoins of the world, the Ethereums of the world, the bigger players in the space that are kind of dominating the space as a whole... I see a lot of potential with them. At the same time, I'd be extremely careful putting my chips all in that basket because that could be really, really detrimental for an investor long-term. What I always say is, you know, let's call it 2020. In 2020, there was a spike in Bitcoin. There was a spike in the market and everybody that I knew was investing. And so everybody got into the market. The sad story is about a year later, one in five of those accounts that started remained meaning four out of five or 80% of people hopped out of the market. That's concerning because that means that the American people, the younger generations are losing hope in the stock market, which drives a lot of the success and wealth within our economy. So we need confidence. We need that belief that investing in the stock market is going to turn you into a wealthy person with time. And so as far as crypto goes, until you have the fundamentals mastered, and I'm talking there's no late bills, you have the cash, you know, your emergency funds on hand, you're investing for retirement, you're investing for non-retirement, all those things are taken care of. Then you get to the point where you have extra money. I'm not I'm not opposed to putting two to five percent allocation of your entire portfolio into crypto specifically, with the understanding that could go to zero tomorrow. And if that's okay, if you're okay with that, there's no problem. But understanding that there's a lot of unknowns with the crypto world. And while I love the idea of it. I don't have 110% confidence that, you know, my S&P 500 fund won't beat that. You know, I, I don't know. I really don't know. And so I think for a younger generation, focus on the fundamentals, do what's right, lock those in and do that to a T, then talk about crypto. But don't be having credit card debt sitting there, IRS debt, and then trying to knock, knock IRS or the crypto door down and put all your chips in Bitcoin because that's silly. Yeah, I, I mean, that's you have to be pretty confident in my mind to invest in something like that. People, they got money to throw around, but the average American, I don't think, is in that space right now. Uh, my last question for you, I kind of alluded to it, but I just want, you know, I know that you're not a partisan, but how do you think election season and then the election coming up in November of 2024, how do you think that that's going to impact all of this? Substantially, not a lot. How are the markets going to react? What's your best prediction? Yeah, so I, I typically think during election season, it's a very uneasy feeling until the president is selected. And once that is actually selected, I think there's a lot more fears that kind of come down a little bit. It's, you know, we finally have an, an answer, right? The unknown's always scary. And so there's going to be a little rocky during that time. But I think like any other time in history is typically after that's all said and done, people are normalized to the new, the new normal things start to get better traditionally. Now, I can't guarantee because I don't know who's going to be in office. I don't know what the next moves are going to be made. But what I will say is typically speaking, it's going to be a positive long term. And I want to get too caught up in the actual political game 
in regards to your personal finances? Because I think your personal finances can still be very successful regardless of who's in office. Unless that person is a communist like Gavin Newsom. So <laughs> That's in a that story, yeah. of course, Tommy. <laughs> in, in that case, I don't have a lot of confidence, but I'm glad that you are a ray of sunshine. I appreciate the optimism and we need more of it. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and let's just hope things get better. Yes, let's hope so. Right. Thanks for having me on, Tommy. Thanks, Brennan. All right, so I know interest rates and inflation and the plight of the average American might not be as sexy or flashy as removing a Speaker of the House, but ding, 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 an earth to Republican grandstanders. It's what average Americans actually care about, and I have some final thoughts. This week has been utterly exhausting. Matt Gates and his tribe of Democrats, yes, Democrats, including Ilhan Omar, for some reason seems to fantasize about Gates almost as much as Gates does about himself, have been on a tear this week. And while they got what they wanted, Kevin McCarthy benched as speaker, I'm not so sure the majority of the American people are looking at this circus as a win or a reason to vote for Republicans. At the end of the day, that's actually all that matters, and I'll tell you why. Sure, voting your conscience and standing by your convictions are important actions when you have a wide enough majority and a leg to stand on. Republicans don't because the supposed red wave of the 2022 midterms never came. It was more of a red wedding of electoral disappointment that left us with a very slim House majority and no control in the Senate. So instead of working with the cards dealt to us, I would argue largely because of Trump-endorsed candidates that lost, some Republicans in secure deep red districts like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to F around and find out because it's really no skin off their backs. And while this all might be fodder for headlines and media attention, it's not really playing so hot outside of the D.C. Beltway. I could go to the grocery store here in Nashville, Tennessee, and ask five people if they cared who was the Speaker of the House, and I guarantee you at, le at least three out of the five wouldn't give a damn or even know what I was talking about. But you know what they do care about? The cost of the groceries in their carts, the mortgage or the rent they got to pay, and the overall free fall of the U.S. of asylum. Americans care about those things, things that might not be as sexy or titillating as the House showdown, but things Americans and independent voters care about and, yes, vote about. Maybe we will get a great speaker like Jim Jordan and this will all work out, but there is a bigger chance it doesn't and the entire party ends up looking like a bunch of sandbox toddlers who can't govern their own party, let alone the country. That might not be totally accurate, but perception is reality, and the perception of the GOP right now is that we are a divided mess. Is this showmanship going to win us seats in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, or Wisconsin? I doubt it. The GOP should be laser-focused on providing a solid alternative to the Biden and Democrat mess, but instead it's consumed by this, by trying to out-mega or out-Trump members of our own friggin' party. And the other sad byproduct of all of this has been the collateral damage Governor Ron DeSantis has had to endure. Same thing, just a different spin. The one man who has been a steadfast and productive conservative willing to take on and win big fights and also win a state by 20 points has been constantly savage simply because he's running against Donald Trump. Donald Trump was a great president, but it's time to step out of Megadonia and Twitter for a minute and breathe the fresh air of reality. This is all such an energy suck. Are we going to do this all the way until 2024? Just rip the party in shreds for social media points? Well, then get ready for another red wedding in November of next year. 
Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.